Welcome to We've Got Issues. I'm Joshua Holland. This week, we're going to speak with economist Dean Baker about, um, well, how things are going in this economy. I think we've found some good news to discuss on this on this dismal show. Uh, very exciting to talk about some positives because, you know, God knows. Um, it's rare. And then we're going to be joined by Leela Corwin Berman. Leela is a professor at Temple University, and she's one of dozens, dozens and dozens of scholars and experts who have developed a new working definition of anti-Semitism, which sounds kind of straightforward and even like uh, obscure, maybe like, why are we even talking about that? Um, but it really isn't. We'll find out why. Uh, but first, I want to do a little reality check, because if you happen to turn on Fox News or um, other conservative media outlets, or, or if you're if you're still like Facebook friends with your old uncle, the angry one who watches Fox News all day, then you are probably aware of the widespread belief among a fairly significant swath of the American public that entire cities were burned down during last year's Black Lives Matter protests. I should say riots, because in in the rights alternative universe, they, they all devolved into riots. There were no peaceful protests or almost no peaceful protests. And in that universe that they've created, hundreds of innocent people, presumably white people, were um, killed by these violent Black Lives Matter protests. Um, it was funny. Some some wingnut actually argued with me that entire cities had, in fact, burned down on uh, Twitter the other day. And I was like, oh, uh, which which city would that be? Can you can you name the city that burned down? And of course, he told me to do my own research, which, uh, as you know, generally means um, go on YouTube and watch some idiot's, idiot's video. But anyway, uh, last year, a research group called the U.S. Crisis Monitor compiled actual data on the summer of Black Lives Matter protests. Uh, the U.S. Crisis Monitor, I should say it's a collaboration between um, researchers at Princeton University and the Armed Conflict Location and Event Data Project, which is a bit, big mouthful. Um, and it is a, like an international NGO. And it follows and tracks social unrest and wars and civil wars and the like around the world, not just in the United States. And their data um, spanned from last March, just a couple of days after George Floyd's murder, um, to late August, when the protests around the country had kind of slowed down to uh, to a trickle. And here's what they found. I'm gonna I'm gonna quote from the report. I'm gonna quote kind of extensively from the report because this is important stuff. This is the reality. Um, in more than 93% of all demonstrations connected to the movement. Demonstrators have not engaged in violence or destructive activity. So that's violence and also um, vandalism. Peaceful protests are reported in over 2,400 distinct locations around the country. I think that is amazing. It was everywhere. Violent demonstrations, meanwhile, have been limited to fewer than 220 locations. Um, in many urban areas like Portland, Oregon, for example, which has seen sustained unrest since Floyd's killing, violent demonstrations are largely confined to specific blocks rather than dispersed throughout the city. Again, I just want to highlight the, the alternative universes. On Fox News, Portland is just, oh my God, it's a, it's a dystopian nightmare. It's like road warriors, you know. Mad Max hellhole. And I have friends in Portland. They were like, oh, yeah, it's down by the federal courthouse. There's like some shit going on there every day. But it's just a just a little area around the federal courthouse is where all of this stuff is happening. And I'm going to continue from the report here. Yet, despite data indicating that demonstrations associated with the BLM movement are overwhelmingly peaceful, one recent poll suggested that 42 percent of respondents believe that most protesters, most protesters are trying to incite violence or destroy property. Uh, I, I'm going to continue to quote, sorry for the lengthy quote. 
Research from the University of Washington indicates that this disparity, that is the disparity between these overwhelmingly peaceful protests, the fact that over four in 10 people uh, tell pollsters that these are violent protests, um, indicates that this disparity stems from political orientation, is more common among conservatives, obviously, and biased media framing such as disproportionate coverage of violent demonstrations. It goes on to say, groups like the Anti-Defamation League have documented organized disinformation campaigns aimed at spreading a deliberate mischaracterization of groups or movements involved in the protests. Okay, so... You have this exceptionally broad, overwhelmingly peaceful protest movement. It's actually could have been a thing of beauty if we um, if we all adhered to the same world of facts. Thousands of peaceful protests all around the country. The study found that police didn't even involve themselves in ninety percent of those protests, and. Um, I've been to a couple of protests uh, where I live, a northwest of New York City, and um, the police and coordinated with the protest organizers. The police were never visible. Uh, we knew that they were a few blocks away on standby in case something happened, but they were never visible, and there were no problems. So um, that's how it was in ninety percent of Black Lives Matter protests last year during the study period, at least, and. Um, the study also found that police used violence against protesters in over half of the incidents in which they intervened. In other words, when they showed up, well, it did not go smoothly. And Black Lives Matter protesters were the victims of an enormous amount of violence, the victims of an enormous amount of violence um, from, from the the right, broadly speaking, including the police. There were over a hundred vehicular assaults during those protests. And um, exactly one of them in the Bay Area was perpetrated by a Black Lives Matter activist. In all of the rest, they were the victims. So, I mean, the reality is that the only people who have reason to fear violence surrounding Black Lives Matter protests are Black Lives Matter activists. They are the ones who have reason to fear violence. So we're dealing with a classic, a classic big lie, right? The the right has turned reality on its head. And I'm just going to say it. It's a a classically, um, it's a classically fascistic big lie, right? You brutalize an outgroup. Then you claim the outgroup is is evil and violent. And uh, you make up a bunch of propaganda about them, which justifies further brutalization. Now, I think it's important that we connect a few strings here because, again, this is important stuff. You have the conservative media and right-wing politicians spinning this big lie. And a thread that we have to connect here is that there is a very receptive audience for that big lie among the police and other law enforcement agencies. I've mentioned uh, Police Magazine's 2016 survey of working cops before. They polled over 3,500 officers, and uh, they found that among that group, support for Trump was at 84%. 8% favored Hillary Clinton in that election, 84 to 8 So most cops are Trumpers. They go home, turn on the TV, and they see Fox News playing the same B-roll of some shit burning in a street with masked anarchists running around over and over and over again. I believe actually Fox um, had to resort at one point to footage of unrest from other countries. They were... They were caught, I don't remember if it was like Ukraine or something. They were showing riots in Ukraine and claiming that it was like in Seattle. 
<laughs> so then, okay, when the cops go home and they watch that in the, in the evening, is it any wonder that they responded with so much aggression the next day when they go down to the protest? And they still are, right? I mean, last week, uh, Minneapolis was like an occupied city as they awaited the verdict of um, in Derek Chauvin's uh, murder trial. Well, why why were there why were there such overwhelming force on the street? Well, the commanders were likely worried about like I don't know whatever or whatever is on whatever Tucker Carlson was warning them about hordes of like Antifa super ninjas or um, sharks with lasers on their heads, whatever it is. And we've seen this over and over again with local law enforcement showing up in like small communities across the country ready to do battle um, with nobody. There's like three peaceful protesters and they're, they come up all dressed for war because they were, they were caught up in some stupid rumors that were going around in uh, right-wing social media circles. So then this week, during a House hearing on the January 6th insurgency of of dunces, the insurrection of morons, we learned that an unidentified um, Capitol Police officer sent a broadcast to all units outside the Capitol that morning. And uh, according to Representative Zoe Lofgren, the, the transmission said, and I quote, Attention, all units on the field. We're not looking for any pro-Trump in the crowd. We're only looking for any anti-pro-Trump who want to start a fight. End quote. He sent this out even as the mob of goons was getting ready to sack the Capitol. Right? They were worried about Antifa activists who have been uh, you know, responsible for one death in uh, over the past, I, for one death ever, as far as I know, in this country. I shouldn't say ever because they, they go, uh, since, since Donald Trump was elected, let's say. They've been responsible for one death, and the perpetrator in that case said he was acting in self-defense. So here we have far-right extremism. Report after report says it is our biggest domestic terror threat for many years. But you wouldn't know that watching Fox and a lot of the people who are in charge of protecting us and keeping us safe, supposedly, they are watching Fox and they are getting that message loud and clear. It is a big problem. <clears throat> now it is... Um, it is a big problem that we won't solve here, so I guess let's um, let's get on with the show. We're going to take a quick break and come right back with Dean Baker. Stay tuned. There was a town where the people known as happy folk lived. Their very existence a mystery to the rest of the world, obscured as it was by great clouds. Here they played out their peaceful lives, innocent of the litany of excess and violence that was growing in the world below. To live in harmony with the spirit of the mountain called Monkey was enough. Then one day, strange folk arrived in the town. They came in camouflage, hidden behind dark glasses, but no one noticed them. They only saw shadows. You see, without the truth of the eyes, the happy folk were blind. Falling out of aeroplanes and hiding out in holes. Waiting for the sunset to come, people going home. Jump out from behind them and shoot them in the head. Now everybody dancing, the dance of the dead, the dance of the dead, the dance of the dead. Welcome back. I'm still Joshua Holland, and I'm joined now by Dean Baker. Dean is the co-director of the Center for Economic Policy and Research where he writes the excellent, excellent Beat the Press blog. He also has a Patreon with the same name. Um, you absolutely should subscribe. Um, just check out Dean every day on uh, the press coverage of the economy. Dean, welcome back to the show. 
Thanks a lot for having me on. By the way, I should mention I'm actually now just a senior economist, no longer co-director. Oh, you know what? I actually knew that, and I just – it's habit. I've had you on many times, and yes. Okay, senior economist. Okay. All right. Uh, you always write up the monthly jobs report, and I always read that right up, and I think the um, the April report, or I guess it's the March report that was released earlier this month, was one of the most optimistic I've seen. And since we've covered a lot of depressing stories on this show, I figured I'd have you on It's, it's a couple weeks after it came out to – ask you is the real economy catching up with the financial sector with the wall street economy which kept booming during the pandemic when a lot of people were out of work uh what's the outlook what's going on well i think the outlook is really good i mean i'm not in the habit of saying that as i think you know and uh, your dogs might be talking yeah about my that. dogs <laughs> anyhow the Biden package is a very robust package for recovering anyhow from the pandemic. And I think the Biden administration deserves a lot of credit in getting the vaccines out quickly. I mean, as we know, there was no plan. The Trump administration had no plan. He said, told the states, do it. I mean, you may recall he tweeted, get it done, you know, which is great. But, you know, Biden's really been very aggressive in getting the vaccines out. And I'm mentioning that because that's, that was why we had the, had the recession and we get people vaccinated. Um, people will be able to be going back to work without worrying about getting the, the pandemic. They can go to restaurants, they can go to gyms, do the, all the other things they used to do. And then on top of that, as I said, it's, it's a very robust package that is well-targeted, put some money in people's pocket right off the bat. But the more important things, at least to my mind, the uh, child care tax credit, they'll be going out to people this summer if they're able to work that out with the IRS, the subsidies in the, the uh, exchanges, the Obamacare exchanges. Um, these are really big deals. So we're looking, I think, for the immediate future at a pretty good economy. I should say pretty good, very good economy in 221 and to probably 222. And particularly if he can get something like his infrastructure package through um, quite possibly for several years thereafter. So, yeah, things are catching up. I mean, it's really um, a testament to Keynesian economics in a sense, right? They passed the CARES Act. Huge amount of money went out. Um, it was not. You know, we, we can dither over its targeting, but it was a very large package. Then you get another COVID relief package with all of these other things going on. And um, even though a lot of people are not yet going back to normal, they are not yet, you know, going out to bars and restaurants and all of that. Um, you know, that's it's really there's a there's a lot of stimulus out there and sloshing around in this economy. And it's it's hackish to attribute uh, what's going on in the economy to, with who's, who is occupying the White House. Common, very common, but hackish. And it seems like there may be an exception warranted here because, as you said, a properly managed vaccine rollout is, the, is really at the heart of the story. Yeah, I mean, that, 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 that's huge. As long as people had to worry about catching the pandemic, there's a lot of things that at least an awful lot of people. I mean, obviously, some people didn't care. They're making a big point. Those people tend to be Trump-supporting Republicans, but that, that's kind of beside the point was some people didn't care, but a lot of people did. And yes. the reality was we couldn't get back to normal until people felt safe. And we're not quite there yet. We vaccinated a bit more than half the adult population. But, you know, that's a really big deal. And we're making very good progress on getting the other half. Again, some people are going to be vaccine-resistant. That's going to be an ongoing problem. But most people are going to feel comfortable going back, doing the things that they would ordinarily do. And we really need that to have a healthy economy. It's that simple. I've been to um, diners twice for breakfast. And I've been out to dinner three times now. I'm very excited about it. So it's, yeah. it's great to get back a little bit. I'm also going scuba diving soon. So oh, that's great. That's, uh, that it's, it's big. Um, the New York Times had a typically annoying piece. It pissed off a lot of people the other day. Kevin Roos, who's usually pretty good, wrote a piece, wrote the piece. It was titled, Welcome to the YOLO Economy. And the subhead was, burned out and flush with savings. Some workers are quitting stable jobs in search of post-pandemic adventure. I am struck by the, and of course, this is, you know, this is the way it always is with every, uh, every economic downturn. There's disparate impacts. But I'm struck by the degree to which the pandemic did and did not impact people. You know, you have these, these very wealthy people, billionaires adding 
billions and billions and billions to their net worth. But then there is another class of people who are like creatives, people who had no problem um, maintaining their incomes, working at home. I They must have put away a lot of money, right? I mean, you're not going out to restaurants. You're not going to your your usual vacation. You're still bringing in your salary from when you were going to the office and you're cooking at home all the time. Are we going to see a, a glut of savings in that group of people? Yeah, well, we are. And of course, those people also got the pandemic checks. I mean, there were, of course, cutoffs, but most people are going to be below those cutoffs. We have an awful lot of people, a single earner earning 60, 70,000. Decent pay, not super rich by anyone's standard. They got those checks that they were working at home, had their job the whole period. They they were already saving money by not having to commute to work and all the other expenses associated with it. Now they have the checks on top of it. So, yeah, we do have a lot of savings in, in a substantial segment. I mean, certainly not everyone. Obviously, I'm not talking about someone who had to go to work in a restaurant and maybe the restaurant was closed for that part of that period. Maybe they got benefits. Maybe they didn't. So I don't, I don't I, I understand that. But the point is that there's a substantial group of people that really came out, came through this just fine. And, yeah, a lot of those people have savings. Um, are they going to spend them? Are they going to use it to pay down debt? A lot of them, of course, still have student loans. They'll use it for that or at least many of them will use it for that. So that it's going to be interesting to see what they do, what they end up doing. One of the stories, there, there's been some coverage of this, but one of the stories I think is going to be very important is the extent to which we see permanent changes in, in work where people now are working remotely who didn't previously. And that means, of course, a lot of people could live very far from where they work. So you get people have an office in New York or San Francisco or in the other big cities, they could be living anywhere. And given the differences in, in uh, real estate costs, um, it might be very attractive to be living in some rural area, in, or not necessarily rural, but say a small town in, in the Midwest and get a four-bedroom house for 200000 as opposed to looking at a one-bedroom uh, condo in New York City that might go for over a million. So I think we will see that. We are seeing some of that already, but the question is how much do we actually see of that? And to my mind, that's mostly a good thing, but I'm just saying that's something to look for. Well, it's mostly a good thing. I, I'm glad that you brought that up. This is something that I've experienced. Again, I, I think I've mentioned this before. I'm, uh, I live in a small city, about 90 miles northwest of New York City. So um, a little too far to commute every day. But if you were to go into the office for an, a weekly meeting, you could live here easily and, and maintain a job in the city. And what we're seeing here is housing prices being just driven completely insane. Uh, and I wonder, you know, we've talked, we've talked many times about housing bubbles. One of the points that you've made many times is that there is no housing market. It's all localized markets, right? There's many, many, many housing markets. The Federal Reserve, some people are saying, oh, they're blowing up another housing bubble by keeping mortgage rates very low. Um, there's uh, data that show that median existing home price, you know, it went up last year when typically during uh, recessions, the price price of housing drops. Uh, is that a worry of yours that we're going to see another housing bubble? I really don't see that at this point. Um, house prices have been rising. Uh, part of that story is higher interest. I'm sorry, lower interest rates, so it makes it much more affordable. And part of that is this dispersion. So house prices aren't rising everywhere. And, you know, New York City and Manhattan, certainly you've been seeing falling house prices. Where I am in southern Utah, they've been rising very rapidly. The house yeah. prices here were very low and you have a lot of people moving in the area. They're building like crazy. But this isn't it, it was easy to see in in the housing bubble of the first decade of the century that prices were out of line for the simple fact nothing was going on with rents. So you saw a rapid run up in house sale prices, but rents were basically keeping pace with the rate of inflation. There was also a big rise in vacancy rates. So it's pretty hard to tell a story of house prices being driven up by excess demand in a context where vacancy rates were hitting record levels. So we don't see that today. You're seeing house prices driven up by people want to live, you know, want to live in these houses. They're not vacant and rents are going up too. So it's, so I think, for the moment, at least, that doesn't mean a bubble can't develop. But what I see, that doesn't mean nowhere's a bubble also, I should say. But I don't see a story of a nationwide housing bubble at all. 
Yeah. And also the the uh, the bubble that was created in the aughts was in large part created by the financialization of the mortgages and disconnected from the actual housing. As, uh, the point that you made is the people wanting to live in these houses is what's driving it. And certainly in my community where, you know, half of Brooklyn has moved up here and I'm I'm not mad at about it. But, you know, if you if you hear under my voice, I'm a little mad about it just because we're getting traffic now. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're getting more congestion too, but I think we we probably have a way to go to match you. Our, my my town is about five thousand people. So, <laughs> um, so uh, let me shift gears just a little bit. Um, uh, Joe Biden has uh, released a new package. The, the this is this is his plan to pay for a large uh, infrastructure plan four four trillion perhaps uh, infrastructure plan. Um, have you looked this over? Have you had a chance to look over at some of the tax provisions? Because I know that there are some of them that are uh, right up your alley. Yeah, yeah. So the, the main focus, I mean, is raising taxes on high income people, people earning over 400000 a year. But the main focus is uh, reversing the corporate tax cuts that, that Trump put in place. And to my view, that makes perfect sense. Uh, you know, the Trump tax cuts were they were sold, at least. They Who knows? Well, actually, I know Kevin Hassett was the chief economist. He did believe it. Um, but it was supposed to lead to an investment boom, and, and it didn't. I mean, you could beat up the data. I follow closely, as do many others. There's no evidence of any investment boom. Investment was proceeding normally, which, okay, but, you know, the, we gave a big tax break and no investment boom. And also the other part of the story that they did in selling it was they were saying that, oh, we're going to lower the rate because the prior rate had been 35%. We're lowering it to 21%. But businesses are actually going to pay that. And, and, and I think I myself and most economists are, are, are sympathetic. I wouldn't agree with the 21% rate, but it doesn't make sense to have a tax rate you're not collecting. So if you lowered the tax rate and you were actually collecting it, that would be great. But it turns out we aren't collecting 21%. We're collecting, last I looked, I think it was around 12 and a half, maybe a little, little under 13%. So we lowered the rate and we still had all the loopholes. So what Biden's talking about is raising the rate. He's saying 28%, whether he gets that or not, I don't know. But I think that's a reasonable target and also getting rid of the loopholes. So he's talking about having a minimum tax and he wants to uh, his Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has been pushing the idea of a minimum global tax so that you don't have companies, uh, uh, countries uh, competing to have corporate headquarters. And just to be clear, um, when you have a country, Ireland has a very low tax rate, I believe it's 10 percent. Um, Netherlands, for some purposes, also has a very low tax rate. It's not that they're actually moving the jobs there. They're just shifting the profits. So right. it's really not that we'd be happier if they were moving the jobs. But the point is, it really is just the worst. I mean, there, there's no reason for us to want a tax system where a company could save a big chunk of its taxes by pretending that its profits are earned in Ireland, Netherlands, or some other tax haven. So this is a very good proposal. Obviously, he'll never get exactly what he puts on the table, but I think there will be a lot of support. And I think if the Republicans you know, were, I'll just put it this way, in prior days, many of the Republicans in the House and Senate would have supported this. But now that you, know, you have Joe Biden in the White House and they're determined to obstruct, um, it's going to be a bigger lift. Yeah, I mean, they can't support it because of the uh, conservative media um, as yeah, well, a very so sophisticated having, system having, having for corporations pay taxes. And so that's right. Yeah, they punish. I mean, they punish anybody who is a um, who who doesn't you know adhere to the to the the prevailing wisdom on the right. So um, this is a potentially revolutionary thing. Just to take a step back, um, this global tax would uh, would mean that we would collect taxes on a company's the share of its sales in this country right that's right so th this would undermine the idea of oh we're gonna and you do have this so i'm not just being facetious here you do have companies no. like google and apple saying that a huge share of their profits are in ireland and we're gonna say okay you could say your profits are from wherever but if half your sales are in the united states we're gonna assume half your profits come from the united states so no point in playing your game Right. What they'll do is they'll take uh, an asset like intellectual property that they make a lot of money on and they'll say, OK, we're moving this asset to Ireland. And now that's where all of that profit is accruing. Exactly. And it's as I say, it's, you know, there there's you know, there, there's absolutely nutty things in the data. So you find if you, if you look at gross domestic product, of course, which is our most common measure of GDP, 
you could find things like Ireland growing at some crazy rates, like double digit rates. And it wasn't that they had, you know, massive economic growth and everyone was having jobs. It was just that you had companies like Google showing profits there that they hadn't previously. Yeah. Um, one other issue before I let you go. Um, it, this is an issue that you've been on for many, many years, as long as I've known you, which is um, patents and drug patents and how we finance the development of drugs. It seems like there is a growing recognition, um, not in the economic sphere, but more in the public health sphere, that what we're doing right now is we're we are not. And when I say we, I should say the wealthy countries. Wealthy countries are hoarding the vaccine, so we are we are in a position right now where we it looks like we are going to have a very um, asymmetrical rollout where we will be past the pandemic while other countries are still struggling to get a significant share of their population vaccinated. There's all sorts of problems with that, even if you don't care about the morality of that, even if you don't care. Yeah, let, let them do that. Let's, let's watch America first. Um, the problem is that when you have the pandemic continuing to run its course in populations overseas, you end up getting more of these mutations, newer strains arise. And uh, eventually, when you have enough newer strains, some of those are going to be resistant to the vaccine. I just wanted to get your thoughts on the debate. Do you think that your uh, kind of position is better represented in the debate over vaccines than it has been over other drugs? Yeah, I mean, it, it is. It has been because this is such a worldwide crisis, and as you yes. say, it's it, it's it's a little bit astounding that there doesn't seem more attention to this. Uh, obviously, people are paying attention, but the idea that somehow you know we might feel bad, and we should feel bad. You know, people in India are getting sick and dying in sub-Saharan Africa, and they don't have the vaccines. But as a very pragmatic matter, the more this pandemic circulates. The greater the likelihood that we're going to vac- we're going to see a vaccine-resistant strain develop. What that likelihood is, I can't say. I don't know. Is it ten percent? Is it one percent? It's obviously not zero. Right. And you just go, what would be the cost if that happens? I mean, are we going to again? You know, and, and I know the the developers of the mRNA vaccines say, oh, we could tweak these, and you know, they'll they'll be good against this new strain, and that's great. Except that. That means several months where we have to test the new vaccine and then we have to go around and vaccinate everyone again. So we're going to have more lockdowns, more people getting sick. I mean, that's absolutely nuts. So vaccinating the world really should be a no brainer. It's a top priority. And the issues in terms of the, you know, people talked about this vaccine nationalism, we're hoarding them. And that's true. But there's actually two issues here. One is, okay, the physical vaccines. How many do we have in the United States? First, how many are in sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, and other places? And obviously, we have way, way more than our share. But to my mind, even the more important issue is we could be producing more. And this is where the intellectual property, the patents come in. So we should be saying what I would like to see is we should have a vaccine summit. You know, have Biden sit down with the leaders of you know the whole world, including bring in Russia, bring in China. They have vaccines there. We don't have to like them. Doesn't matter. Figure out what vaccines could be produced in what quantities and get them distributed absolutely as quickly as possible to the whole world and screw the patents, you know, screw the patents. People talk about industrial secrets that uh, Pfizer and Moderna, they have their, well, fine, we'll pay them, share the know-how. So we should have no obstacles to producing absolutely as many vaccines as possible, as quickly as possible. And it's, you know, it's good. At least people in the public health world are making this argument. But among economists, um, it's it's still a back burner story. And still, there's very to my mind, again, it's kind of infuriating because, you know, the conventional argument on patents is that drug companies will work for years and years. And oftentimes their 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 drugs fail. They turn out not to be effective or they, they have side effects and they don't get any money from them. So when they actually do have a big breakthrough, then they have to make tons of money. Right. That's exaggerated. But there's some truth to that. In this case. The vast majority of the money spent developing these vaccines, particularly the, the mRNA ones, that was from the public trough. And then we had Operation Warp Speed take Moderna. The federal government literally paid for the development and testing of that, that vaccine. So if at the end of the, the phase three clinical trials, turns out they look at the data and they go, doesn't work. 
Well, obviously, they wouldn't make as much money as they expected to, but they were already paid. So there was no risk there. So this idea that we have to worship their patent and we would use that as, a, as an argument as to why we can't get more people vaccinated because they have a patent and they can keep people from using their technology. That's nuts. Yeah, it is nuts. It is nuts. Uh, we should just be having a, a, like a basically open source uh, vaccine where you can use any manufacturing anywhere in the world because the capacity to manufacture the vaccine exists beyond what is actually uh, dedicated to manufacturing the vaccine at present. Dean, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. I really do appreciate it. Uh, your your insights are always valuable. Well, thanks a lot for having me on, and uh, say hello to your dogs. They're very cute. Well, thank you, Dean. Yes, you say hello to your dog as well, and also your family, your, your non-fur family. Yeah. <laughs> Folks, stay tuned. We're going to take a quick break and then come right back. See the girl with the diamonds and the shoes. She walks around like she's got nothing to lose. Just see the go-getter. She's everybody's side. She's a queen of the city, but she don't believe the hype. She's got her own elevation, holy motivation. So I wrote some letters on big goals. I got faith in you, baby. I got faith. Welcome back. I'm very happy to welcome Lila Corwin Berman to the show. Professor Berman is a scholar of American Jewish history at Temple University. Professor, welcome to We've Got Issues. Thanks. Thanks for taking the time to speak with me. Um, this week, we've got a somewhat obscure, but I think significant issue to, to talk to you about. And that is the bedeviling and uh, politically fraught question of how to define anti-Semitism. Uh, Professor Berman worked to develop and uh, was one of uh, many signatories to an effort to do just that um, called the Jerusalem Declaration on Anti-Semitism. Let me first ask you, why is this so difficult? It seems to me like if you harbor animosity um, towards Jews or you think they form an all-powerful cabal that controls uh, the international banking system and the media, then then you're an anti-Semite, right? And we're done here and we can just go and talk about something else. Why, why all the mishigas over the definition? Well, you know, in a sense, you're right. I mean, you just provided a really good definition of anti-Semitism. And I think that the issue comes in the application. Um, it comes in the decision of whether there is, you know, something actionable that maybe could be done um, whether institutions or states or governments, whatever it might be, um, should designate certain kinds of speech as things that are really beyond the pale. Um, and, and, you know, one of the issues, in a sense, is that although it would seem really clear to be able to define what anti-Semitism is or what any other kind of, you know, group or identity-based hatred is, in fact, we, we actually don't really have clear legally actionable definitions of say, you know, racism or sexism or misogyny or, or any of these things, because, you know, context matters so, so much. So you might hear a comedian making a joke um, and it could out of context sound just disgustingly anti-Semitic or, or racist or whatever it might be, but obviously the context can make a huge amount of difference. So, you know, I think those are some of the reasons that that actually what on the face would seem like a quite easy project is, is rather complicated. Now, uh, people who are, um, you know, Palestinian rights activists, et cetera, et cetera, they would say it a little bit differently that the um, that the definition of anti-Semitism 
has been weaponized to silence them. I'm sure you're familiar with a report that was put out a few years ago um, by the Center for Constitutional Rights in the Palestine Legal Center. It was titled The Palestine Exception to Free Speech, a Movement Under Attack in the U.S. And basically it was about how, I detailed how um, Israel's defenders in the United States, advocacy groups, um, PR firms, think tanks, all of that, were really trying to stifle criticism of the uh, the Palestinian occupation, Israeli government policies on campuses. These campus wars have been raging on and calling um, calling that advocacy anti-Semitism was central uh, to that strategy. And I just wanted to get your, your thoughts. Is that something that, do you think that that recognition that that was happening not in all cases, but that there was a bad faith uh, attempt to conflate criticism with Israel with anti-Semitism. Is, did, that, did that motivate this effort? Look, it certainly is part of the context of this effort. I mean, all you have to do is go and look at the guidelines and you see how many of them are tilted to talking about issues having to do with Israel and with Zionism and with Palestine and Palestinians. So that is you know, a, a kind of key part right now of what's going on when people are trying to figure out what's the right way of defining anti-Semitism without thwarting uh, people's ability to freely exchange ideas and debate things, especially debate things that sovereign states do, right? You know, yeah. a, a kind of value of, of liberalism is that we can criticize governments and we can debate what their actions are. So, so that is absolutely, you know, at issue here. And I think that, you know, one of the really stubborn pieces of this is as much as you know, in in a kind of like vacuum, one might want to say, okay, there is the nation state of Israel, it is a sovereign state. And what it does, it, you know, is, is totally fair game to say is wrong or right. And that has nothing to do with Jews. There's a long history of, you know, both kind of volitional ways that the state of Israel has um, positioned itself to speak on behalf of all Jews. There's a long liturgical tradition of using the language of Zion and Israel as, as a kind of, um, you know, symbolic shorthand for the Jewish people as synonymous with the Jewish people. And from, from the other side, uh, criticism of the state of Israel has absolutely, and I think, you know, this, this simply can be shown um, at various moments and by various speakers, it invokes Jews as if they are standing for the state of Israel. So in a sense, from kind of all sides, um, it, it ends up being a tricky thing to kind of pull apart. But what you raise and what that report certainly raised is that that work matters and that the danger of just saying these things are totally interconnected. So anytime you invoke Israel, you're invoking Jews um, or of saying these things have nothing to do with each other. In both cases, you are, are going to be blind to to, you know, possibly pernicious forces, whether they are silence, pe- silencing people, harming people, um, you know, or, or circulating really deceitful and, and conspiratorial and, and hateful ideas. Yeah, it is a sticky wicket. I mean, and and I think that everybody should recognize that there is a, it is there's a, a fundamental tension here because uh, my my own perspective is um, that it is often the case that especially critics of Israel coming from the left are uh, uh, um, unfairly painted as anti-Semites, but then at the same time um, there are times when criticism of Israel to my Jewish ears, just like, I'm like, wait a second, that's not, that's not cool. You know, mm-hmm. there's almost, um, you know, the famous um, Supreme Court uh, ruling that dodged the defining pornography, right? It was like, if so, you know it when you see it. So, I mean, that, that's, that is why one, one reason why this is genuinely difficult. Um, but this effort was, Specifically, a response, right, um, to a controversial definition of anti-Semitism that was adopted several years back by the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance. Is that correct, that this is a response to that? Yeah, it it absolutely is. And it it really says as much, um, you know, because that document that was, was not supposed to be translated into particular policy or law, but was supposed to be 
really according to one of its authors, Ken Stern, was supposed to be a kind of working definition that would be helpful, especially for European governments as they were trying to data collect and figure out what was going on in, in their countries when it came to anti-Semitism. Um, it, it, it kind of got transformed into something that was, you know, used as, as the entirety of defining what anti-Semitism is and started to be used by institutions, um, you know, to shut down programs, to silence faculty, to silence students, whatever it might be. So it's not that that is a valueless definition, but it, it, in a sense, my perspective is that it moved to a place um, that it was not meant to go. So you're saying it was the way that that definition was uh, capitalized upon by various actors or 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 the way it was it, it became uh, in effect rather than the original definition. So for listeners who don't follow this stuff, which I think is probably most of them, what was that definition? So I don't have it memorized verbatim. Um, yeah. And, you know, and, and it's quite easy to look up. It's not very long, but it basically has a, a kind of funny verbiage for describing what anti-Semitism is. It, it kind of defines it as certain things that are, um, you know, highly pernicious against the Jewish people. It does not make the link as the Jerusalem De Declaration does to other forms of racism or hatred. So it really does kind of take anti-Semitism on its own as, as a separable thing. Um, and, and the parts of it, I think, that were most controversial did have to do with um, its designation of certain kinds of um, activities as on the face anti-Semitic. So for example, a double standard with regard to Israel. So if somebody's disproportionately criticizing the state of Israel, it contends that this can be anti-Semitism. Um, and, you know, a number of us, you know, who who find that definition troubling have focused on that, for example, as, as really like logically problematic. Like, you know, I, I mean, I criticize my husband more than I criticize other men, right, for, for certain reasons, right? And it's not that I dislike him. In fact, I like him a great deal, yeah. um, you know, but but I, I am not an equal opportunity criticizer in, in all means. Um, you know, so so it's it's a kind of bizarre standard, even though, you know, it, in certain ways, sometimes there is a way in which Israel is held up to a, a kind of scrutiny that that might certainly make people uncomfortable. But whether that should cross some kind of threshold of an institution being able to label something anti-Semitic is is really a separate issue. And there are other things where, you know, maybe we could agree it's really incredibly crass and inappropriate to make analogies between Israeli policies and, and Nazi policies. Maybe somebody, you know, could make a very principled argument about that. Um, but is that something, again, that that an institution should say needs to be considered always and in all cases as an anti-Semitic statement? So there, there were these ways in which that definition, um, you know, seemed to really lean into the idea that that criticism of Israel and, you know, and it didn't say all criticism of Israel was anti-Semitism. That would not be right. Um, but it gave these kinds of examples that unfortunately, I think, have made it um, easy for certain institutions or states that that have adopted it to um, really silence certain kinds of conversations that Jews and Palestinians and non-Jews um, should be able to have. Now, I'm going to just read the uh, definition that you and your group uh, have have come up with uh, because it's brief and there are guidelines that follow and people can look this up. But the definition itself says anti-Semitism is discrimination, prejudice, hostility, or violence against Jews as Jews or Jewish institutions as Jewish. Very straightforward, very straightforward. Um, let me ask you this. How has this been received within the kind of, for lack of a better term, uh, the institutional Jewish community. And the reason that I ask is that one of the um, one of the guidelines in here it says, "quote boycott, divestment, and sanctions are commonplace commonplace nonviolent forms of political protest against states. In the Israeli case, they are not in and of themselves anti-Semitic. This is um, it seems to run against the uh, very." common party line in a lot of these organizations, uh, ADL and others. How has this been received? Um, 
you know, I think that that some folks want to say the ship has sailed. The IRA definition, right? This one we've been talking about, um, you know, has has really kind of captured the conversation about this. And you know, a, a little group of scholars may say what they wish to say, but it 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 really doesn't make a difference. Um, you know, but what is notable to me is not whether someone's accepting it or not accepting it. It's the discussion. It's the fact that you know institutions that might have just simply signed on to this, or political leaders who might have just simply signed on to this, because you know what political leader, or what Jewish institution is going to say, "Oh, I'm not going to sign on to something that is essentially trying to say anti-Semitism is bad." So those kinds of um, entities, I think, at the very least, are confronted with the fact that 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 definition, in the eyes of some people who have spent much of their life studying Jews and Jewish history. Um, you know, that that it, it has some real problems that need to be at least addressed or defended or reckoned with. Um, and I, no, by no means is this definition going to gain, you know, full scale approval across the board. But if it pushes forward the ability to have an informed conversation, um, you know, about where lines are drawn and when is anti-Semitism being used as a really genuine way of protecting people and of trying to mitigate harm, um, and of trying to build alliances with other groups of people who who are experiencing hatred, and when is it being used as a way of silencing groups of people? Um, you know, of tamping down the possibilities for for conversation or for different perspectives. Um, so that's what I see. You know, at this moment, as as really the most hopeful thing. Um, and and you know, there's other. There was another definition that was released uh, right around the same time. So just the fact that there is this sense that different voices want to be part of a broader kind of conversation about this, um, that's good. I, it, I'm not sure that it's really going to, you know, change exactly what people think, but at least they'll have to grapple a little more. Folks, you can check out the entire Jerusalem Declaration on Antisemitism, <clears throat> on antisemitism at jerusalemdeclaration.org, all one word. Professor, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I really do appreciate it. My pleasure. I'd also like to thank Dean Baker and David Edwards, our producer and engineer. I'd like to thank the good folks at Alternet and Raw Story for supporting the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Joshua Hall, and you can subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, I want to thank all of you good people for tuning in. Have a terrific week. Like the remnants of my 27s crushed up on your porch.